morning, everyone. It's a delightful day to be here to worship the Lord. Uh, I was selected to bring the message today. I don't know why. Tom is sitting out there. He should have been the one. Uh, but we will, we will see what the Lord does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that uh, we will receive it, that we will know you better, love you more, and that you would truly be who we love most of all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a scary thing to stand in a pulpit and proclaim God's word, uh, but you can't see my knees knocking back here, so that's good. And with all the trouble in the Middle East, I thought I would speak this morning on Babylon, but I didn't think you would want to hear me Babylon. <laughs> so we'll talk about something else. Uh, we have been in Sunday school studying the doctrines of grace for the last uh, 14 weeks, and uh, grace shown in the Old Testament. And this has really caused me to reflect more deeply on these doctrines. Um, they offer so much for us to contemplate uh, more deeply on them. Um, what they mean to our church, and more importantly maybe, what they mean to uh, our lives as believers. Uh, so I'd like to make a quick review of these doctrines of grace, uh, mostly this morning from the New Testament references. They are known by several names. One, the doctrines of grace. Uh, some people call them the five points of Calvinism, uh, although Calvin never referred to them that way. Um, but these came about in response to the rise of Arminianism. A man named Jacob Arminius um, in the 15, late 1500s, early 1600s, uh, he kind of broke from the Reformation um, points of scripture and uh, he gained quite a following and so uh, there was a movement to restore um, to the churches the doctrines of faith that, uh, that Calvin had uh, essentially uh, put forth and so they met in this town called Dort and the thing was called the Synod of Dort and that was uh, their first meeting was in 1618 and they met through uh, 1619, almost eight months of time there, and they held over 180 meetings uh, to decide what they would put forth as the doctrines of grace according to scripture. And um, there were other people there. It was kind of an international uh, movement or meeting, and uh, there were many people from other reformed nations that came. And the results of the sins of Dort are what we know as the five points of Calvinism. Um, Calvin had died some 55 years earlier, so he wasn't there obviously. Um, but they used his writings a lot and the scripture as they sought to bring forth the doctrines of grace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I have to get a quote in from Spurgeon, um, he said about Calvin, he said, Calvin propounded truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed. He knew more scripture and explained it more clearly. So that was Spurgeon's take on Calvinism. And I think Calvin was actually only 26 years old or so when the first 
uh, of his Institutes of the Christian Religion were published. Uh, quite an undertaking for a young man. So let's move on to the Doctrines of Grace, you know, the acrostic uh, tulip. And so we'll kind of follow that, although there are other names um, uh, put forth other than just the tulip. Okay, the T. The T stands for total depravity. Uh, some refer to it by the term radical corruption. Now I want to make a quote. Some of you have probably uh, been watching uh, movies about Christmas, and there's one movie out there that starts this way. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the story I'm about to relate. The Christmas Carol, the uh, opening chapter. I'd like to rephrase that a little bit. Man is dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about this. Uh, this must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from the doctrines of grace that we're going to relate. Uh, so, man is dead. And if we do not understand this doctrine of total depravity, uh, then all the other doctrines of grace uh, will fall apart. And that's probably why this uh, doctrine is placed first in the uh, list of doctrines of grace. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, every part of man uh, is corrupted by sin. He is a creature that is incapable on its own, of obeying the law of God. Romans 5, verse 12, you may know this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in Romans 3, 10, we read, no one is righteous, not even one. And in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the effect of the original sin of Adam and Eve and leads us to the point of total depravity. This uh, depravity affects every part of our human existence, uh, our spirituality, our emotions, our physical being. Um, scripture says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, not just sick, we were dead. If we're only sick, we could get better. Dead people cannot. And that's where we are as human beings. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3 reads, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So as Paul is writing to the Ephesians here, uh, he's showing a distinct difference. This is what we were, and this is what we are now. Okay, And we were at one time like the rest of mankind. Now, the doctrine of total depravity doesn't teach that um, man is always as evil as he can be all the time. Uh, but what it does teach is that total depravity um, points us that we are in complete rebellion against God. I'm going to give an Old Testament quote here from Psalm 14, uh, beginning in verse 1. 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this is the state of man. And Paul reinforces this in Romans chapter 8 where he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Scripture clearly teaches that man is spiritually dead uh, because he cannot and will not turn towards God on his own. We're kind of like a, like a possum that's born dead beside the road. That's where they all come from. That's the state that man is in. Uh, we're not born innocent. We're not born without sin. Uh, we are born dead in sin. And I know we like to look at a new little baby and think, oh, how cute, how innocent. No, uh, he's not. He's born as a sinner, no matter how cute they are. There is no state of innocence in our birth. So that's total depravity. The next letter is U in TULIP, and that stands for unconditional election, sometimes referred to as uh, sovereign election. This is God's rescuing of sinners, and it's entirely due to his own will and his own good pleasure. Salvation is not brought about in any way by our actions or our decisions. Uh, read Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we read this morning, even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to his purpose according to the purpose of his will. You see, this election was not from anything that we have done. Uh, it's totally a work of God. Uh, this further emphasizes our inability to earn salvation by works. Uh, since when we were chosen, before the foundation of the earth, we didn't even exist. So how could we have done anything on our own to bring about our choice? It's totally from God. Romans 8, 28 and 230 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called or chose. And those whom he called or chose, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why did he choose you or me? Uh, because I was so wonderful? Eh, I don't think so. Uh, no, it was totally his will and his plan. <laughs> Uh, it's based solely on his grace, not our works. And I'd like to repeat that over and over because many people today think that 
uh, I am good enough to come to God, and no one is good enough to come to God. We've seen total depravity. God had to choose some. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, uh, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Uh, if God elects believers to salvation, he does this based solely on his grace and not our works. Uh, Acts 13, verse 48 says, and when the Gentiles, this is... Uh, uh, Paul proclaiming to the Gentiles here that he will be sent to the Gentile world uh, to bring the message of the gospel. And when the, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay. Those who place their faith in Christ are those whom he has elected to do so. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is repeated again in John 6, uh, verse 65. Um, those who are elect will be drawn by the Father. God saves whom he will. He does so according to his grace not on the condition of our works or any foreseen response to his grace. In this sense, this is why it is called unconditional election. We had no part in it. The L in TULIP stands for limited atonement or better referred to as definite atonement or definite redemption. Now this one is generally the most controversial and maybe the most uh, misunderstood aspect of the doctrines of grace. We call it sometimes, uh, for whom did Christ die? We read in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, but made alive in spirit. Uh, Christ on the cross redeemed and paid for the sins of believers. I think we can all agree on that. We would not be here as believers if Christ had not died on that cross for us. The doctrine of definite atonement is sometimes a stumbling block for many, so I'm not going to offer any heroic apology for it, but just let me say this, because I am not a theologian by any means. In Acts 13 that we read before, uh, go down to verse 47 and 48. It says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Not all who heard Paul's message believed. Some did, and which ones were they? Those that were appointed to eternal life. They were the redeemed. Others among that group were not. To be redeemed means to be predestined, to be called, to be justified, and to be glorified. In John 10, beginning in verse 3, 
we read, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought all out of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And then in John, verse, uh, John chapter 10, verses 26 to 28, he says, but, do you not believe, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd, which is Jesus, lays down his life for whom? For his sheep. Okay? When the sheepfold was there, um, not every shepherd had his own area. They put all the sheep in a place together. Okay, and what does the Lord do? He comes and he calls his sheep. And they know his voice and they follow him. And to them he gives eternal life. Well, what about all the others in the sheepfold? Um, they are not his sheep. Therefore, eternal life was not given to them. So it looks like eternal life is maybe given to a specific group of people. It would seem that redemption was designed to bring to pass God's purpose in election. And that God's saving work is limited in that it was designed to redeem some and not others. It was not of limited value. That's why the term limited maybe isn't good. It was not limited in value. It is of infinite worth and would have secured the salvation of everyone if that had been God's intention. Uh, that's all I'm going to say on that point. I'll let you to do some study on your own on that one. So we come to the I in TULIP, which stands for irre irresistible grace, sometimes referred to as effectual grace. No one can be saved unless they are first drawn by God. We read that in uh, John chapter 6. Irresistible grace does not teach that God's calling may not be resisted for a period of time, uh, but that this resistance will ultimately be overcome. I think most of us can look at our own lives and see that we probably did resist the grace of God at some point. Um, but what is irresistible about God's grace is that those whom he calls will be saved. God will have... Um, God will have the intended, uh, the intended effect upon a person's life. We cannot thwart uh, the will of God to save us. In John 6, and beginning in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As we skip down, we read, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone who looks on the Father will come to the Father. Uh, all who are called by God to believe in Jesus Christ will do so and be saved. This is the irresistible grace of God. God's sovereign election is not contingent, uh, contingent on our response. Uh, 
Those who are called are redeemed by him and will ultimately obtain justification and glorification. We saw that in Romans chapter 8. If we think we can uh, pit our puny will against the will of God, then we need to rethink something. God will have his way. Those whom he has called are those who will come to faith. We're down to the P, the last one. The P in, in uh, Tulip is for perseverance of the saints, or some refer to it, perseverance of the Savior. Uh, this doctrine is a wonderful conclusion to the doctrines of grace and is another blessing for all believers. If you have been justified before God, you cannot lose your salvation. Uh, once a person is truly saved, the salvation is eternally secure. If the life you have been given is eternal, and if you can lose it, then it wasn't eternal, was it? Okay. So by definition, eternal life means that we will persevere. Jesus, in speaking to his sheep in John 10 again, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Uh, you've heard it said that when this says no one can do it, if it were written in Texan, it would say ain't no way, no how. Uh, we can be snatched out of the Lord's hand or out of the Father's hand. Um, the scriptures teach that when a person believes in Christ, they immediately obtain an eternal life that cannot be lost. In John 5, verse 24, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, life eternal. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And this is a promise. Uh, if you have come to Christ, you will be raised up at the last day. The promise of Scripture. John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable. That is our eternal life. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So we are not keeping ourselves. It's pretty clear that we are guarded by the power of God through faith. Uh, a comfort, don't you think? To know that once you have received God's eternal life, you're never going to lose it. We see sometimes those who appear to fall away permanently from the faith. Um, these were probably never true believers. We look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. Uh, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain 
that they were not of us. So those who had uh, tasted a bit of the uh, goodness of God, the Holy Spirit, and the goodness of maybe having eternal life, they were not true believers. Uh, they only tasted it. They did not ingest it. It wasn't inside of them. And so I think uh, that speaks pretty well that only those who can appear to have fallen away were those who were not believers to begin with. John MacArthur stated, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And isn't that true? If we had to rely on ourselves, we would do it. And that's, and that's because we don't keep ourselves. So those, a brief summary uh, with some scriptures from the New Testament to talk about these doctrines of grace. And I believe that these doctrines are merely uh, summaries of what the Bible teaches about salvation. Uh, writing shortly before his death in 2000, James Montgomery Boyce notes, noted, having a high view of God means something more than giving glory to God. It means giving glory to God alone. This is the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. This is why the doctrines of grace are so desperately needed in our churches. They give glory to God alone. They define salvation as being all of God. And when salvation is correctly perceived in this way, then and only then, God alone receives the glory for it. Only sola gratia produces soli deo gloria. Only grace alone produces glory to God alone. For Drake, I have to give another Spurgeon quote here, a little bit longer. Uh, Spurgeon was a committed Calvinist. He was committed to the doctrines of grace that we've been talking about. And uh, he said this, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing, there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor can I comprehend the gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. That was a quote by Spurgeon. Well, so far I've avoided the topic of the lesson, which is why I believe the doctrines of grace. I think if the Bible teaches us anything, it surely teaches us that our God is a sovereign God. He does as he wills, and his will is perfect. And that's the beginning of why I believe the doctrines of grace. I believe God has a plan for me and a plan for every one of you. I grew up in a Missouri Synod Evangelical Lutheran Church. For four years, we had catechism classes every Tuesday evening after school. Uh, for four years, we had workbooks, we had homework, we had Bible readings. Uh, I must have heard the gospel 
a hundred times, but it fell on deaf ears. Why is that? Total depravity. Let's start with that. I know most of you think I'm perfect, but don't be fooled. Just ask Susan. No, don't ask Susan. Uh, before I became a believer, I would have said that I'm not any worse than anybody else. But all the individual sins that plagued uh, me were not the problem. Uh, my problem was that I was not concerned about anything of God. Um, that's the big sin. Okay? I was definitely separated from God, and in my stupidity, I didn't even know it. Uh, I was definitely one of the none who seeks after God. Uh, that's easy to see now. And I think if we look at our lives and look where we came from and who we were, I think most of us will reach that point that we are indeed consumed by sin. What does unconditional election mean? Well, why God would choose me for anything but condemnation and judgment, I have no idea. Uh, I was his enemy, unconcerned about him. I had nothing to offer him. No good reason that he would do anything but send me directly to the fires of hell. But having become a believer, I can say it was his mercy. It was his will and his choice alone. It was a gift, the greatest gift that I ever received. Being chosen to become a child of God as his sovereign election. And it was all of God. What about the definite atonement? Well, I don't fully understand Christ's atonement for sin. But I do know it was definite for me. Um, it was applied to me. I've been redeemed and I had nothing to do with it. All of God. What about irresistible grace? Some of us will resist God for a period of time. Because God is sovereign, he will have his way. Valentine's Day, 1968, <laughs> was a red letter day in my life. I was in the Naval Air Training Command in Beeville, Texas. Some of you may have heard the story, but bear with me. I'll try to tell it to the glory of God. Uh, my flight instructor and I had been on a cross-country flight, training flight to California and coming back. Uh, we landed in El Paso and refueled and were to fly on to Dallas. Well, about halfway through the trip, we lost our directional gyro. Uh, that's the little compass in there that's going to tell you exactly what your heading of the aircraft is. You do have a wet compass up here and just something you could hold in your hand almost, but that doesn't give you the exact heading that you need. So we lost that, and the weather was still good, so we landed at uh, Navy Dallas out here, Hensley Field in, in uh, Grand Prairie. And uh, we refueled, and then they said, well, you know, we can fix this for you. You shouldn't be flying out here without it. And it was true. So we decided to spend the night there, and they would fix it for us. Well, that night, uh, we had an ice storm that covered our aircraft with a half inch of ice. And they couldn't get into the cockpit to fix it. Uh, so we spent another night there. We woke up the next morning. It was bright and sunny, but airplane was still covered with ice. They still couldn't get in. Well, my instructor was anxious to get home, so we spent another night. And the next morning when we woke up, it was still covered. Uh, it was a pretty day, and we noticed that uh, 
were getting the weather reports and uh, my instructor ran into a friend of his who was a flight instructor in Kingsville, Texas. And he was on a little flight with his student and um, they came up with a plan to get us home. Um, he would park his airplane in front of ours and let the exhaust melt the ice off of our aircraft so we could get into it. And they did. He turned up in front of us and the heat from his blast took all the ice off our airplane. Then the plan was that uh, we would fly on his wing and he'd drop us off at Beeville, Texas, and then he would go on home to Kingsville. Well, that sounded like a good plan. So uh, we took off, my instructor was flying, and as we uh, left uh, Dallas, the weather started to turn bad and pretty soon we were uh, in, in what we call in the soup. We are in the clouds, okay? So our lead aircraft is flying on instruments and our job was to stay as close to him in this cloud so that we wouldn't get separated and not have the uh, directional gyro that we needed. And so we're flying along in that. And then my instructor started complaining that he had a bad case of vertigo. Uh, when you're flying and you don't have a visible horizon out there, what happens? You have to rely on your instruments. Well, you're looking at your instruments, but your ears are telling you something else. Uh, your ears may start telling you that you're turning left or you're upside down or you're turning right or you're level. So it's a very complicated thing and you have to trust those instruments to know what the attitude of your aircraft is. So he was complaining about this and I would just reinforce, okay, we're turning, we're turning right, we're level and so on. And so we get, uh, we're still in the clouds there and the weather's deteriorated pretty good. We get down close to Beeville and we do what's called a section approach, okay? And that's where the lead aircraft will, will fly the, you know, on his instruments to get us to the landing, and we just stay on the wing. And when we can see the airport, he can go his way, and we can go ahead visibly and land the airplane. Well, the vertigo was uh, getting my instructor pretty badly, so he said, tell me when you see the runway. So I'm in the back seat. And... Uh, we flew down there, and, and his job is to just look at that other airplane. He doesn't want to look away from that other airplane because we could get lost in and separated. Okay, so he's looking at that thing. I said, okay, I see the airport out there about a mile at 2 o'clock. And so then he looks away quickly to find it, runway. And when he did, uh, vertigo took over. There's a, there's a short time with vertigo that when you're ears are telling you one thing, you look away quickly to see the horizon or the airport, and there's two or three seconds in there where your ear and your eyes have to sync, okay? And so when he looked away to see the airport, he felt like he was turning away from the other aircraft, so he put a little stick in towards the other aircraft, and I yelled, watch out, because we almost hit the other airplane. And so he looked back, and then he nosed it down, um, to avoid running into the, the lead aircraft. And when he did, we weren't very high, so we were hit the ground about a half a mile from the runway. Uh, interesting. So he cobs the power, tries to pull it back into the air, and then we hit a tree. <laughs> and the left wing departed the aircraft. And then my instructor departed the aircraft. And then I departed the aircraft. And so there we were. It was a, a strange thing. Usually the back seat has to go first uh, because if not, uh, if he doesn't go first, 
then you're still underneath. This guy goes first, you're underneath. Now that happened. So uh, when we ejected out of there, um, our seats collided in the air and uh, took a big chunk out of my helmet. And uh, another strange thing happened. The sequence of ejection means that once you're out of the aircraft, there's a little lead slug that weighs a couple of pounds and it's fired out and it pulls out a little parachute about this big and that catches the wind and pulls the big parachute out so that you can parachute down. Well, after we collided, that slug of mine went through his parachute and collapsed his parachute, okay? So then I find him grabbing on to the cords <laughs> of my parachute. And my parachute was still unblossomed and it managed to blossom out just a second before we hit the ground. So we got, got saved there. And the thing that saved us in all of that was that we ended up in a 20 foot deep drainage ditch around the field. So we had that extra, um, extra 20 feet. And so we're sitting down in there, we're both conscious, and we can hear conversations going on between the lead aircraft, the tower, and the ambulance. The ambulance was coming down the runway looking for us, and he was reporting that he couldn't see anybody. Well, we were down in that ditch. And uh, could hear the lead aircraft saying, I didn't see any parachutes. <laughs> so there we are in the ditch. The... Um, ambulance is going up and down the runway looking for us so we climbed up out of the ditch and flagged down the uh, ambulance and they took us over to the base hospital uh, my instructor had a black eye and that was all he had <laughs> since uh, our seats collided I had a fractured zygoma mandible uh, uh, maxilla and mandible they were fractured a couple of broken ribs uh, and a couple of compression fractures of the lumbar vertebrae. And you get those because when you eject in this old uh, type ejection seat that we had in the old aircraft, when you eject, you get hit with 22 Gs immediately. And you're supposed to be back, seated back, head up when you pull the face curtain down to eject. Uh, when we hit that tree, I didn't have my harness locked, so I'd been thrown forward. and. I'm looking at the airspeed indicator and it reads 145 knots and then I'm grabbing around trying to find that face curtain. And I tell you, I don't know how I found it. <laughs> I think to this day, maybe an angel pulled that thing, but it was in my hand, so I got it somewhere. And uh, that's all those G-forces being thrown forward is where I got the compression fractures. So long story, make it a little shorter. Uh, I spent six weeks in the hospital at Corpus Christi and um, the doctor said we have two choices here. With those compression fractures you can lay flat on your back for six weeks without rolling or turning or we can put you in a body cast. I said oh I'll lay still. Believe me you won't even know I'm here. So for six weeks, I had to lay there while that all healed. And uh, as I was leaving the hospital, that same day, they brought my instructor in. He had had a flame out on final approach, 
and when his chute opened, he swung into a tree and broke his neck. So that was the last time I saw him as I was leaving. So that's, that's the story. And wouldn't you think something like that would get your attention? Uh, that you'd start thinking about your mortality, uh, start maybe thinking about God. Uh, sad to say it didn't. <laughs> and so four years later, uh, I was in dental school and God placed me at a cadaver table for a gross anatomy uh, with two new friends who apparently were believers and they were reading a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth and they were talking about that while we're doing our dissection and I thought I'd like to get in on this discussion. I was a rank unbeliever. Uh, so I got a copy of the book and I started to read it and then uh, you know how the Bible says, but God. Well, I was reading this book. I was not reading it uh, to know about God. Uh, I was reading it to find out how I can get in on discussion. Uh, but God had a reason for me to read this book. And one evening I was in the lobby of Richland College waiting for Susan to come out of a class. And I was reading a page uh, in this book and when I read it, God opened my eyes to see the gospel of Christ. And I didn't resist. I couldn't. And that was the time when I was saved. And I have to say it was all of God. I didn't contribute anything to it. Um, when God gets hold of your heart, you will believe. And so all that story to say that uh, there are times when I resisted God, there was a time when I couldn't anymore. And then we have the real blessing here of perseverance of the saints. Uh, we read in 1 Peter 3, we read it before. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Romans 8:38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, separate me, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, I believe that God in Christ will see me through to the end, as he will every believer. This does not mean now that I'm saved that I can do anything I want to do, uh, just because I'm saved, but what I should want to do now is to honor and glorify the God who chose me, the Redeemer who saved me, the Holy Spirit who willed me to believe, the triune God that'll keep me to the end. All of God, all of God alone where the glory belongs. Well, maybe, maybe you might be thinking to yourself, God chooses people and causes them to believe, why do we even have to preach the gospel? Well, there's a couple of reasons. 
One is God told us to. It's the Great Commission uh, to go into all the world, teaching, making disciples, and baptizing them. So we have a command from God to do it. Secondly, neither you nor I know who is elect. So are we just going to preach the gospel to those who will be redeemed? Well, I don't know them. You can't pull up the shirt and look for a stripe or they don't wear a pen that says, I'm elect. So we preach the gospel to everyone, okay? And we rely on the Holy Spirit to do the conviction. It doesn't matter how well I present the gospel to someone uh, unless the Holy Spirit works in that heart to convict them of a, that they are sinners and need a, a savior. Uh, that's when the work of God begins. But isn't it nice that he chose us to do it? What a privilege to tell the gospel to someone. Uh, a marvelous privilege. And maybe you're thinking, how can I know if I'm elect? Okay, how can you know? Well, God is talking to your heart like he did to mine when I was reading that book. Uh, and if you will respond to God's calling as the Holy Spirit directs you, uh, then you can know that you are elect. You can know that you are saved, uh, not just now, but to all eternity. Uh, what a comfort. Uh, think about it. And as you think about these doctrines of grace, uh, I would say look at your own life and see where these doctrines might apply to your life, uh, how God worked in your life. And then you'll know that it was all of God, not of anything that we have done. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful thing that is to know that we don't have to do it. It's God who does it because all the glory should belong to God. God says he will not share his glory with anyone. And we want to be giving that glory to him. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your sovereign grace that saved a sinner like me. I thank you also for all here today that you have brought to saving faith by your sovereign will through your sovereign grace. You are the only one who can work that great miracle. Thank you for the Son who became our Lord Jesus Christ in order to redeem your elect to eternal life. Cause us now and forever to be filled with wonder and awe and thanksgiving for who you are and what you have done for your children. In Christ's name, amen.